All right. Well, Happy New Year, and uh, thank you for joining us on the first Sunday of 2018. And just in light of uh, just the beginning of the new year, uh, we are starting a new series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, now, if you've ever read through the whole Gospels or all four of the Gospels, uh, you'll notice that Mark is the shortest of the four at just 16 chapters. And so for the millennials, it's probably your favorite of the Gospels. Um, another thing about Mark is it's actually the earliest of the Gospels. Uh, originally, a lot of people thought Matthew was the first Gospel, especially because it begins with you know the birth story and genealogy of Jesus and things like that. Uh, but in fact, as scholars came to study uh, the Gospels and, and, and do some, something called textual criticism, they came to understand and learn that Mark was actually the first one. Mark was written uh, just around 30 years after the death of Jesus. Now, who was Mark and, and who was he to write uh, the, this Gospel about Jesus? Mark actually wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. Uh, Mark actually wasn't like an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark actually became a follower of Jesus through the preaching and ministry of the apostles. Uh, Mark was a companion of Peter. So you guys know Peter, you know, the rock, Peter who was also always doing and saying like kind of crazy things. Uh, but Peter was one of the chief apostles, core disciples in uh, Jesus's 12. Um, Mark became one of Peter's companions. They traveled together, they did ministry together. And so as Mark was learning from Peter and being discipled under Peter and serving with Peter, Mark decided to record an orderly account, an account of the gospel and life of Jesus Christ. And so um, that's Mark's connection. Uh, he was connected to Peter, and that's how we got uh, the gospel of Mark. Now, one thing you'll notice about the gospel of Mark is that it is the most direct of the four gospels. It is action-packed. Uh, Mark doesn't give us a genealogy or the birth story of Jesus. Matthew and Luke do, okay? Um, there's no baby Jesus in the beginning of Mark, right? Uh, the first time we see Jesus is a, as an adult being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Another thing you don't see in Mark uh, is a lot of teaching from Jesus, okay? You guys know the, ser uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, that's found in Matthew and Luke, okay? It's not in Mark, Okay, there are some parables in Mark, but there are not that many parables. There are way more parables and teachings in uh, Matthew, Luke, and, and John is just full of theology. John does a lot of writing about Jesus, explaining to us who Jesus is, right? Uh, a lot of the miracles, the supernatural, almighty version and, and picture of Jesus. Uh, that's what John gives us, Mark doesn't really give us that kind of perspective. Mark focuses instead on who Jesus is and what did he do on this earth. Not so much his teaching, uh, not so much different aspects, but he just really just centers in on the heart of the gospel, which is who is Jesus and what has he done to save us from our sins. So I'm really excited uh, to start off this year and to, to kick off and spend the next couple of weeks and months in the gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter one, verses one to eight. Mark chapter one, verses one to eight. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's gonna go up on the screens as well. But may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In our passage today, uh, we're going to answer three questions, three questions that come to us from the text. And the first question is this, who is Jesus? Okay, who is Jesus? And that's, that's, that's one of the most important questions that, that Mark wants to answer in his gospel. Uh, second question we want to answer is, how do we encounter this Jesus? Okay, who is he? How do we encounter him? And thirdly, what happens when we encounter Jesus? When our worlds collide, when we meet him, when we get to know him, when we experience him, what difference does Jesus make in the lives of his disciples and our lives? So first question, who is Jesus? Now, um, you may think that only Christians care about this question, right? It may be like, oh, well, we cared, but that's just because we go to church. But in fact, it's really fascinating for me to see that the entire world, right, especially in America, people want to know who Jesus is. It continues to intrigue our culture. Okay, over and again, year after year, I see images and articles of Jesus making the cover of Time magazine, making the cover of Newsweek. There was actually one site that kind of researched the metrics of, of print, media, and magazine sales. And they said when Jesus is on the cover, sales can go up as much as 51%. Right? 51, that's like... That's like Jesus boosts, right? That's more than Kim Kardashian, more than Justin Bieber. Like, I'm, it, it makes sense like, that, that, that um, editors would want to put Jesus on the front page of their magazine if they're going to boost their sales up 51%. It's safe to say that even though it doesn't always seem like Jesus is so relevant, the idea that Jesus is irrelevant, that's actually very false. Okay. But I actually shudder when I think about the conclusions that these magazines are making, the conclusions that our society and our culture makes about who Jesus really is. We often will hear people talking about Jesus as a good moral teacher or a wise sage, right? Other times he might be described as a religious zealot who died as a martyr, that because of his zeal, because of his teaching, because of his actions, he got himself killed by Pontius Pilate and the Roman Empire. There's all these different conflicting theories and all these ideas and perspectives on who Jesus is. But Mark tells us who Jesus is. In the opening of his gospel, verse one, Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The word gospel means good news. The word gospel means good news. In the Greek, it's euangelion. And Mark tells us that this good news, okay, that this announcement, this world-altering, life-changing news, that this is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And then Mark wastes no words declaring who Jesus is. And in a single verse, you and I, we can see three things about who Jesus is. First, the simple name Jesus. 
okay? It doesn't tell us too much in our culture and, and in our language. We just see Jesus. And maybe if you grew up with, uh, um, anyways, yeah. And um, yeah, we don't think much of it. But Jesus was actually derived from the Hebrew name Yeshua, okay? And another translation for Yeshua is Joshua. And Yeshua means God saves, Okay, God saves. So Joshua means God saves. Jesus means God saves. And if you've read the story of Joshua in the Old Testament, what's amazing about Joshua is that Joshua does something Moses wasn't able to do. We think about Moses and you think he's a man. He's, he's a man who led uh, Israel out of slavery from under Egypt. He's the man who led uh, Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. He was a great prophet. He met God on Mount Sinai like a man speaks to his friend face to face. And yet there was something Moses was not able to do. He wasn't able to lead his people into the promised land. You know who did? Joshua. Right? Joshua led Israel into the promised land. And when we understand that Jesus is Yeshua, that Jesus is the true and true Joshua, it makes sense that the name Jesus be so appropriate that we understand that, that Jesus is the one who saves his people. Jesus is the one who secures the work of God to save his people. The second thing that Mark tells us about Jesus is that he is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not just the last name of Jesus, right? First name Jesus, last name Christ. That's not the case. Christ means Messiah. Christ means that, that he is the anointed king. And this meant so much to the Jews. It meant so much to Israel because ever since the days of King David, Israel has been waiting for the next king, the true king to rise up from, Israel, from David's bloodline and deliver them from oppression. They remembered how great David was. They remember how David secured peace in the promised land. They remember the glory days and they also remember that David was anointed. There was a prophet who, his name was Samuel. And while David was a young boy, Samuel looked at all the brothers and he, he ended up finding David and he anointed him with oil. He said, this one is to be the king of Israel. So that's what the Messiah means. Messiah means the anointed one, the anointed king. And Israel was waiting for their true king to come and save them. Their true king to lead them to glory. Mark tells us Jesus is the anointed king. The third thing that Mark tells us, very simple. We take it for granted, but it's this. Jesus is the son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you're like, Pastor Michael, I, I learned that back in Awana, right? I learned that back in Sunday school. You're not really telling me anything new. And even to the hearers, even to the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews in that day, they might be familiar with that language of someone being, claimed, being called the son of God. There were godly men, mighty men in the Bible who were called sons of God. In Rome and Greek, uh, Greece, kings and their rulers, they would proclaim themselves to be sons of God. Caesar, Caesar Augustus, when his announcement went out, he was called a son of God, right? So there might have been a familiarity there, but Mark is not talking about Jesus, the son of God, in, in those simple terms. Mark is clearly telling us that Jesus is divine. Jesus is not just the son in a human sense, no, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. Jesus is the son of God who's, who's come to do the works of God. 
And he's come to restore his people to God. He's come to be the mediator between a holy God and a, and a sinful mankind. And to further make this case, just in case we might hedge and say, I don't know if he really meant that. Maybe he's just talking about Jesus as the son of God in the same way some of the Old Testament uh, prophets were talking about people. Mark quotes Isaiah 40. Okay. Mark quotes Isaiah 40. And, and Isaiah 40 is this prophecy. And in this prophecy, God gives Israel a promise. And he says this, he says, one day I will come, the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh will come and restore justice. He will establish righteousness in the land. I will come and deliver you. I will come and save you. I will come and bring flourishing to my people. See, all before that, God sent prophets, God sent judges, right? God sent kings, God sent rulers, God sent human people as agents, as vessels to establish his work, right? People like Moses, Abraham, David, Samson. But here in Isaiah 40, God says, you know what? One day I'm gonna do something even more. I, the Lord. And in your Bibles, when it's Lord, all capital, that means Yahweh. Yahweh is gonna come. But before Yahweh comes, Isaiah says, there's going to be a forerunner. There is going to be a messenger from the wilderness and he is going to make way the path. He's going to make straight the path for the Lord. And by quoting Isaiah 40 here at the beginning of Mark, Mark is making two important distinctions. First, John the Baptist is this forerunner. Okay. John the Baptist is the messenger that Isaiah was talking about. He's the forerunner who's come to make straight the path of the Lord. Second, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is the Lord who came down. He is the Lord who has come down to establish righteousness, justice, life, and hope for his people. Once again, you guys might be sitting there and being like, that was eloquent, that was poetic, doesn't seem very relevant. Okay. I want us to understand the 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 just the utterly amazing and mind-blowing nature of the incarnation. You see, there are many people, maybe even here today and definitely in our society and culture, they reject the gospel because they reject the idea that Jesus can be fully God and fully man. Okay? They reject the claim of the incarnation. People are convinced that philosophically it is not possible. You are either a man or you are a God. You can't be either or, or you can't be both and. How can you be fully God and fully man? Or scientifically, people are like, don't you know biology? Don't you know anthropology? Aren't you modern? Aren't you a scientist? Don't you understand that we're just material? There's no such thing as a soul, right? That's archaic. That's primitive, okay? There are even liberal Christians who talk like that and believe that the human soul is just an archaic construct, they reject the idea that God can take on flesh and walk among us. And they think that the early Christians were primitive. They think the early Christians were naive. They think the early Christians, people like Peter and John and James and Paul, they must have been gullible to believe such a tale, such a story that Jesus died on a cross and rose again on the third day and he really was God and he was fully man. They just think that that is 
naive. But I want to just pause and remind you guys that the first Christians were Jews. And as much as we as moderns here in 2018 may think that the idea of Jesus and the incarnation is primitive and untenable, I want to tell you, whatever disdain and distance you might think you have to the idea of Jesus as God, whatever distance and blockage you might think you have, the Jews had even more. They had more reason to reject the incarnation. In the Jewish mind, it was absolutely unthinkable and unacceptable to believe that God could become man. Why? Because God was God. He was transcendent. He was absolutely righteous. The idea that Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, a God with a name so holy, do you know the Jews weren't even allowed to say his name? They weren't even allowed to write his name because his name was that Holy, how dare you claim that Yahweh became a man? That the infinite, the righteous took on flesh? That was absolutely unacceptable to the Jews. If anyone had a reason to outright reject the claim that Jesus was the son of God, it was the Jews. And brothers and sisters, that's what got Jesus killed. You know that? It's because Jesus claimed to be God. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they would not accept it. That was utter blasphemy for Jesus to claim to be God, to claim to have the authority to forgive sin. So they said, crucify him. That's how antagonistic the Jewish mind was against the idea of God becoming man. But now we have to ask, okay, then why? Why would these Jewish men become Christians? Why would men like Peter, James, and John become followers and even martyrs for the gospel when their entire culture, when their entire community, when their entire worldview rejected this idea? Friends, that's not us. Our culture, community, worldview, relationships, everyone's not like completely antagonistic to Jesus. Their culture was. Why did they change? Why did they believe? The answer is this because they met the real Jesus. They met the real Jesus and his truth was irresistible. As much as it went against their culture, against their preferences, against what their parents taught them and what their friends believed, what their even religion trained them up to believe, meeting the real Jesus transformed them. And they had to, they were conflicted. See, no longer could they hold to a Jesus of their own imagination, a Messiah of their own design, a king of their own preference, a savior of their own making. No, they met the real Jesus. And their Jesus wasn't a Jesus who fit nicely into their worldview. Their Jesus didn't fit nicely into their own framework. In fact, he blew it up. They encountered Jesus Christ, the son of God. And when they did, their lives were transformed. Even a man like Saul, a man who was a complete Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he had every reason to reject Jesus Christ as the son of God. Jesus Christ as Yahweh, come condescending down into man to take on flesh and save his people. He hated that idea so much, he persecuted people even to death. And yet the moment he met the real Jesus, He changed. How could that happen? Brothers and sisters, I have to ask you today, 
Have you met this Jesus? Have you met this Jesus? Even more so, have you been transformed by this Jesus? You see, my fear is that too many of us haven't. We've heard about Jesus. We've grown up singing songs to Jesus, uh, telling our, being told to believe in Jesus. We know the story that uh, you know, Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, he rose again. Uh, we're familiar with that, and yet our lives are unchanged. One possible reason why is because your Jesus isn't the real Jesus. Your Jesus is a figment of your imagination. Your Jesus is a product of your preference. Your Jesus you have made to, to fit into your worldview and your preference. Your Jesus is nothing more than an imaginary friend. And friends, we've all grown up with imaginary friends. Okay? It could have been someone at your tea party. Okay? It could have been just someone you play with and your teddy bear and you give them life and you start talking to them and you name them. We've all had imaginary friends and all the guys don't think they had imaginary friends. But you know what? We did. Because every time we play basketball, we act like we're going up against Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant and we shoot last minute threes and we make them. And those are our imaginary friends, right? Here's the thing about imaginary friends. When we need them, they can comfort us. They can. They can be fun. It can be playful. They can be helpful when we need them, right? What they can't do is transform us. Your imaginary friends, right? People that you make up in your own worldview, in your mind, according to your own frameworks, they will not transform. Perhaps you are unmoved, unchanged by the gospel and the person of Jesus because you've never met the real Jesus. And if you can identify that, I wanna ask you to seek him to investigate the truth of the gospel found in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and really seek after him. C.S. Lewis tells us we only have three options when it comes to Jesus, okay? See, we've all packaged him and made him very like, you know, he's admirable and Jesus is my homeboy and I like, and we're fans of Jesus. We like him and we wanna learn from him and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're, we're unchanged, we're unmoved. C.S. Lewis says that's actually a very ridiculous posture to hold towards Jesus. There's only three things you can do when you're making a conclusion about Jesus. Either he's a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. Liar, what do we mean by that? Basically, okay, either Jesus is really the son of God, he is the Lord, he is the king, or he just made it all up like some brilliant cult leader. And those people are real. They really are cult leaders in the world who fabricated lies and they get followers. And Jesus was no, nothing more than that. So if he is a liar, you know what we should do? We should ignore him. We should reject him. The second thing is perhaps he's a lunatic. Maybe Jesus really did believe that he could walk on water. Maybe Jesus really did believe he was the son of God. Maybe Jesus really did believe that God the Father sent him on a mission to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And he really did believe that, but he was just insane. He was just a lunatic. C.S. Lewis says, that's very possible. And if you believe that, if that is your conclusion, you know what you should do? Stay away from Jesus, right? But the third option and the only option after that is if Jesus truly was the son of God, if Jesus truly was who he says he was and did all that he, all that the eyewitnesses and the apostles claim that he did, then he is Lord. And if he is Lord, our lives should be rightly aligned to him. We cannot treat him like an imaginary friend. 
We cannot try to manipulate him and shape him into a God of our own preferences. No, we have to seek to know him as he truly is. You and I must seek to know the real Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the good news. He is the gospel. So how do we encounter the real Jesus? How do we get there? How do we meet him? How do we experience him? Let's go back to our passage again. Mark chapter one, verse four. Mark writes, John appeared. Okay, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Mark just changes subjects real quick. He talks about Jesus, the son of God. Boom, John appeared. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Mark describes John the Baptist as a man from the wilderness. And he reminded Israel of their greatest Old Testament prophet. His name was Elijah Elijah was a man of the wilderness and Elijah did some amazing things for the glory of the Lord, for the sake of Israel, against the false gods of Baal, against the false idols that were plaguing Israel. Elijah was Israel's greatest prophets. And as Mark is describing John the Baptist, a man with a leather belt and camel hair and eating locusts and honey, coming and teaching in the wilderness, Israel's immediately thinking about Elijah. He's thinking about Elijah. And John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, is, it's twofold. There's two things he did. He preached and he baptized. He preached and he baptized. And his message in his sermons was to repent for the forgiveness of sin. John the Baptist would go throughout the wilderness, all throughout Judea, and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And for all who repented, for all who repented, he would baptize them. He would baptize them for the forgiveness of sins. And in this way, he was preparing a way for the Lord. In this way, John the Baptist was the one who was making straight the path for the Lord. Give you a little background. You know, back in the ancient days, when an emperor would travel, right? And when the emperor would travel, um, a crew of workers, they would literally go before him and prepare the road while he traveled. Okay, because these are all dirt roads. These are all dirt roads. And so if there was a pothole, the workers would fill it, right? If there was a bump, they would level it. If the road was too crooked, they would try to straighten it out. Why? So that the emperor can have a smooth ride, right? If you've ever watched that movie, Coming to America, um, the, 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 the king, right, as he would walk, and he was James Earl Jones, there would be women who would go before him and throw like rose petals everywhere he went. They were preparing the way for the king, well, the emperor back then in Rome would have the same thing. Crews would go before and straighten the path for him, all because the king was coming. Royalty was coming. Glory was coming. And in this manner, John the Baptist knew the king was coming. The king of kings was coming. And so he was preparing the way for the Lord. He was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was baptizing to prepare the way of the Lord. By preaching and uh, by his message of repentance and forgiveness, 
right? That was what John was doing to prepare people. And, and, and I just want to quote Jay Adams, a great scholar on biblical counseling, okay? He talks about repentance because this is something we've heard of a lot in the church, but I want to tell you, our generation, we struggle with it. We struggle with repentance, okay? Uh, I found this quote really helpful. This is what he writes. What is repentance? It is not regret or feeling sorry. Rather, it is a rethinking that leads to a turning from sin. Okay, let me read that again. Rather, it is a rethinking that leads to a turning from sin. In repentance, one confesses his sins before God and agrees with God's assessment of our sinful standing and deeds. I love that. Okay. Are you willing to agree with God? When God says you are a sinner, you are like sheep who have gone astray each to your own way. Do you say, ah, oh, not really this week. I live pretty good. And you know, why do you got to throw so much shade at me, God? Do you reject the claims of the scriptures that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God? Do you accept that? Or do you kind of ignore it? When God calls you a sinner, does that mean anything to you? Repentance is an agreement with God. We say, yes, Lord, we are. Yes, Lord, I fall short. Yes, you are holy. Yes, I am wayward. God have mercy upon me. Because repentance literally means to rethink or change your mind. Another theologian writes that repentance is a rational decision and a willful act rather than an emotive feeling. So repentance literally means metanoia, right? Meta means change. Noia is your mind, your knowledge, okay? We never think about repentance in this way. Why? Because when we think about repentance, we think about grief, don't we? We think about feelings and sorrow and tears. And I think because we associate repentance so much with emotions and feelings, when the emotions aren't there, the repentance isn't there. Isn't that right? That's so much me, okay? There's that phrase, sorry, not sorry, right? What does that mean? It's kind of like, I don't care. Like, sorry, I don't feel anything. That's our generation, okay? We struggle with numbness. We struggle with callous hearts. And because we think that repentance is connected to emotion, we don't repent over our sins. We don't feel like we should or we can repent unless there's like, oh, contrition. Contrition is sorrow. Contrition is grief. But what is repentance? It's the changing of your mind. It's rethinking. It's a rational decision of a willful act rather than an emotive feeling. Are you the kind of Christian who has to feel remorse in order to repent? Okay. Let me tell you, you have it the wrong way. You have it the wrong way. The biblical path to repentance is this. Sober-minded, thinking and reflection upon God and who he is, upon his commands and his word, and upon your own life. Not when you're weeping and the lights are down and you feel like, you know, just so many feelings, so many feelings and the music is playing and you're like, I don't know what's going on, but I just, I just feel so emotional. I feel broken and then I'm gonna repent. No, biblical re repentance requires three things clear biblical thinking about who God is, what his word says, what his commands are, and how you've been living. Okay. And then you let God speak to you. You let God tell you who you are, 
how you've been living, whether it's righteous and obedient, whether it's unrighteous and sinful. And here's the challenge. Do you agree or disagree? Are you going to say, yes, Lord, you're right? Or are you going to say, Lord, that's not really sin. That's kind of like, uh, you know, more like a bad habit. It was more a mistake. It was a misunderstanding. I didn't really mean it. It was an accident. There's so many ways, church, that we, we hedge and we hide and we try to excuse ourselves. We do not agree with God when God says that is unrighteous. We say, oh, can't, it's kind of gray, right? It's, ambi- it's freedom. It's not really sin, is it? Brothers and sisters, I know that there are many of us that struggle with hardness of heart. We struggle with callousness and that's why we struggle with repentance. I wanna tell you, the mind is the gateway to the heart, okay? You cannot love what you don't know, right? The mind is the gateway to the heart. So if that is true, then we have a cure for numbness. Your generation, our generation, we have a cure for hard-heartedness and it is simply this, think upon God. Set your mind on Christ. Think clearly, soberly upon his word and let him tell you who you are, right? And as we think upon him, as we set our mind upon him, as we consider his word, as we look at our own lives and reflect upon the things that we're doing with our hands, thinking with our minds, setting our eyes on and setting our hearts upon, then we'll see whether there's alignment or disalignment, whether there's obedience and disobedience. And then we'll say, Lord, have mercy on me. I confess my sin. I see it. I see it. I know it. I understand it. Allow me to challenge you. Don't just sit there and wait until you feel something. Okay. Do not sit in that seat week after week, coming to church or doing a quiet time or whatever it might be. Don't just sit there and wait until you feel something. Rather, think and reflect. Make a rational decision to either agree with God that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness or you know what? Disagree with him. Make your case. Wrestle with God. Go for it. That is more profitable. That is more profitable, more meaningful than just sitting there and waiting till you feel something. Think upon him. Either agree or disagree. And it is in this way, when we agree with the Lord, when we agree with his word, when we come before him and acknowledge that he is God, he is truth, and we are sinners desperately in need of his mercy, just as John prepared the way of the Lord, you and I, we are preparing our hearts for the Lord as well, okay? You want to experience God? You want to encounter God? Repent, repent. That kind of humility, that posture, that prayer, that reflection, that paves the way to encounter God. God. The second thing John did was to baptize, right? So everyone who did repent, all as they were coming through Judea and Jerusalem, everyone who did confess their sins and repent, John said, let's baptize you. We're going to baptize you as a sign and a symbol of that repentance. Now, here's the thing. John's baptism was unique. It was entirely new to Israel, okay? You see, the Jews, they were familiar with washings, They were familiar with ritual washing. So uh, if you were here during our previous sermon series, we talked about the tabernacle and the temple. Every time the Jews walked into the temple, they had to wash their hands, okay? Purification. Just like, you know, if you have good hygiene or you're super OCD, every time you touch something, you got to wash your hands, right? Every time you eat, you want to wash your hands. Um, The Jews understood, right, that they needed purification. They come in to worship, wash their hands. 
And even the priests, the holy ones who are set apart before they went into the holy place to do more worship and offer more sacrifices, you know what they had to do? They had to wash themselves as well. Okay, So they were very familiar with water and cleansing and purification. Did you guys know that in Exodus 19, right before God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, Israel is all gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. God is about to make a covenant with his people. You know what God says? It is laundry day. He tells all of Israel as a reminder of his holiness and their sin. He says, don't just wash your hands, wash your clothes. Imagine an entire nation of people did their laundry. They washed their clothes as a reminder that they needed purification before a holy God. Exodus 19, you'll see it, it's right there. But you know what? There was something new. There was something special and different about John's baptism. And we need to see this. You see, before baptism, the people, they always washed themselves. The Jews didn't go into the temple and saying, priest, wash my hands. The priests didn't go before the holy place and say, we got to wash each other's hands. Everyone washed their own hands. They washed their own clothes. They washed themselves. But for the first time, we see in John's baptism that we have to be washed by another. That it wasn't enough to wash yourself for the forgiveness of sins, for true forgiveness. You can't wash yourself. You can't purify yourself. You have to be washed by another. Do you see that? John washed with water. Jesus washed with the Holy Spirit. This is so important for us today because I believe every Sunday, so many of us, so many of you, you come to church and you've come to wash yourself. You've come to purify yourself. You've come to, to find forgiveness, and so you wash yourself with your prayers. Some of you wash yourself with your tithes. You feel guilty. You're saying, Lord, I'm so sorry I don't serve. I'm so sorry I don't do my quiet times. I'm so sorry I, I'm not living a life according to your righteousness, but, but I'm going to be generous, so I'm going to write a check. And so you try to wash yourselves with your tithes and your offerings. You, so others try to wash ourselves with service. We think if we just come early and stay late and do a lot for Jesus, then he will forgive us. Then he will accept us. There's others of you who try to wash yourself with earnestness and your affections and your tears. And you think if you just cry and if you really mean it and if you really get into worship and you're really passionate, then God will forgive you. But baptism tells us you cannot wash yourself. That for real forgiveness, we have to be washed by another. The gospel reminds us that, of that as well. This is how we prepare our hearts. This is how we prepare ourselves to encounter the Lord. We come with humility. We come before Jesus, we come to the cross and we stop trying to wash ourselves. We stop trying to buy into the idea that one day I will be a better version of myself. I will be a better Christian. I will get it all right someday. Stop waiting for that. The sooner we come to an end of ourselves, the sooner we understand that even a man as great as John the Baptist wasn't worthy to untie the, the, the leather strap of Jesus's sandal. That when we come to God in humility, and understanding that, yes, we cannot forgive ourselves. We cannot purify ourselves, trying to wash ourselves. It is vain. Jesus, you alone. 
you alone can wash me. You alone are my hope for forgiveness. When you come before God with that heart, with that prayer, with that posture, that's how we, that's how we encounter Jesus. That's how you encounter the real Jesus. Last point. What happens when we encounter Jesus? Right? Who is Jesus? Right? He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? How do we experience him? Through repentance and understanding the nature of baptism that we need to be washed and cleansed by another. What happens when we encounter Jesus? The text clearly tells us that you and I, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this means that our forgiveness is not just symbolic. This is so important. You know, all of the Old Testament sacrifices, every time they slayed a bull or slayed a calf, right? Every time they washed themselves in the basins of water, right? Or lit up incense uh, that would go up to the heavens. All of that was symbolic, hoping and trusting that God would apply a spiritual blessing, a benefit of forgiveness and atonement and acceptance on their behalf. But it was all symbolic and it was all foreshadowing things to come. You know what's amazing about Jesus? When Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, those symbols become realities. The faith of the Old Testament saints becomes sight for the New Testament covenant, New Covenant saints. You see, when the water is to symbolize cleansing and a forgiveness of sins and acceptance in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, being quickened and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that actualizes the presence of God with us. Brothers and sisters, I really appreciated Pastor DC's sermon last week on the Holy Spirit. If you haven't listened to it, it's gonna be on our website and our podcast. Check that out. But we need to understand the person and work of the Spirit because it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that all the benefits of Jesus, they are made yours, okay? All the benefits of Jesus are made yours by the Spirit. How do you become a son of God? How do you become a daughter of God? How do you experience forgiveness? How are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? How do you become a citizen in the kingdom of God? The Bible tells us that when you accept Jesus, you experience a peace that transcends all understanding. How does it actually happen? It is only through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel is the person and work of Christ, right? This Jesus Christ, the God-man who came on earth, lived the perfect life. He died on the cross as our substitute for our sake, taking on the wrath and the penalty of God. Three days later, he rises again, showing us and proving that he is victorious over sin and death and Satan. And the promise is that for everyone who believes, by grace through faith, we are saved. Here's the question. How does that become ours. It's by the Holy Spirit. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows this. So he comes not just with symbols, not just with externals. He comes baptizing by the power of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism by the Spirit it is putting on. You see, for us, what do we have to do? We have to repent. We have to put off. We have to turn away. We have to empty ourselves of our pride. And what do we do then? We turn to Christ and Christ fills us up. 
He gives us life. He gives us hope. The Spirit quickens us. He revives us. He strengthens us. He blesses us. That's how the gospel becomes real to us, by the work of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, when does this happen? I know a lot of times you guys will be like, I've never experienced that. Brothers and sisters, you have. If you are a Christian, if you have claimed that Christ is Lord, if you believe in the promise of the gospel, you experience the baptism of the Spirit. There is one baptism. Okay? We don't truncate it. There are certain Christian groups who says there's a water baptism and there's a spirit baptism. We don't believe that. There is one baptism. Okay? But there are many fillings. So if you are a Christian today and you're saying, Lord, I want to experience the power of your Holy Spirit, what you are praying for is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're praying for a filling. You're saying, Lord, help me to experience the benefits of Jesus, the reality of the gospel again in fresh, new, and powerful ways. That is what the Holy Spirit affords you. Pray for a filling of the Spirit. Pray for renewal in the Spirit. Pray for the, the empowering of the Spirit. But today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not know where you stand in faith, Jesus wants to baptize you in the Spirit. He wants to take your heart that is a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. He wants to take your eyes that have been covered with scales and you haven't been able to see and understand and, and know God today. He wants to baptize you in the Spirit so that you can know who he really is. You can see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God the savior and atoner of your sins. Today, would you consider Christ? Would you look upon him? Would you prepare the way for him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace, a grace that is so rich and lavish that, you're, that you sent your only begotten son to take on flesh, to walk among us and to die in our place. Who are we? Who are we that we would be ransomed with your holy and righteous blood? Lord, would the weight of the gospel be laid upon our hearts right now? Would the beauty of Jesus come before us in our minds in our hearts, help us to see, help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to hope in who you truly are. Father, I pray for a genuine encounter that every single one of my brothers and sisters here right now, that they would encounter Jesus Christ as the living and risen Lord. And as we meet him, May we be changed. May we be changed. May we be made more like Christ. May we be renewed. God, we believe that you are able. We believe that you are willing to do this amazing, miraculous work in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.